Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your studies. We're still on the Christmas story. We walked at the past couple weeks looking at the cultural context of the birth of Jesus in the sense that he's a king being born. And we compared that to two other kings being born, or not being born, but two other kings. One, King Herod, right next to Bethlehem was that palace of King Herod. So we can, we can put those right next to each other and then say, what does it mean that Jesus is the the Christ, the king, king of the Jews, versus who they thought Herod being the king. The other one we did last week, Caesar, uh, Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus is the emperor at the time, and we noted all the similarities that he claimed. You start to begin to wonder, well, maybe that's why, perhaps, God sent his son, Jesus, at that particular moment, because of Caesar Augustus being on the scene. And there's a constant play. Who's king? That's what, you know, God wants to be king in our lives. Jesus is the king, so we make him the king. But we have to, you know, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that word, so we have to kind of think about, metaphorically, what does that mean to become the king, that we're Christian? So I want to add, what we're going to do today is I'm going to add one more element before next week, when we talk about what does it mean that we are, for us to become a king, how can we apply that to our own lives and kind of give ourselves a framework for our own spiritual growth, spiritual development? So this one, is a, it's, a, it's going to be a little bit strange because it comes from a mystic. So today is going to be an introduction of sorts to mystics or mysticism both Christian and Jewish, and we're going to look at a mystic from the 13th century named Meister Eckhart. And one of the things that he emphasized in almost every sermon that you read from him is something about the birth of the Christ, the birth of Jesus. So I want to show you the metaphor he uses now, it's going to come out of 13th century context, so it's going to sound a little bit different to our modern ears than we're used to. I always try to pick a, a background photo that relates to what we're talking about. So, this is a church in Germany, Erfurt, Germany. I don't know, can probably pronounce that better than I can. In Germany, this is one of the churches that Meister Eckhart was related to, and they have, as one of the doorways on the church, 
a portal dedicated to him, the Meister Eckhart portal to the church. And if you notice, it's got that labyrinth or a maze-type design, and in the, in the Middle Ages, when they would design a church, they often would put some type of maze or labyrinth that would, it, it represents your spiritual journey. You're on a journey. It's often, it's not a straight line, that's for sure, when you're walking with God. And so this gave a, it's a more concrete representation of a spiritual journey. So it makes sense as his mystical teachings that they would make the door represent kind of the, all the twists and turns of a spiritual journey. So here's a little bit closer picture. I'll use that as our backdrop. And then right down here, it might be hard to see on your screen, but it does say in memoriam to Meister Eckhart. So we're not going to go a whole lot into his life, um, but I want to talk at least about what, how he talked about Christmas as a metaphor. And I want to make sure that you hear me say as a metaphor. So he is trying to create a spiritual metaphor for us then to apply to our lives. Okay, so this is it. Notes on the Christmas story, part three. And our central focus is this gentleman right here. He was a Dominican friar. Now you can tell if you know, well, I don't know artwork, but I I'd understand this one. Dominicans are known as black friars. They have a black cloak. And so you can you notice his black cloak. Uh, the Dominicans came about in the 13th century in Europe. Thomas Aquinas is, an, is a Dominican. And one of the differences between them and the Franciscans was they placed intellect higher than the Franciscans placed will. And one of the things that was happening, of course, Europe was always tumultuous when it came to the religion and politics inter, intermixing. But the Franciscans and the Dominicans were in a bit of a battle, you know, like maybe a, uh, one of our Protestant, you know, have two, de two denominations within Protestantism disagree and they kind of battle it out. Well, the Dominicans and the Franciscans were in a battle. And when the Franciscans were in power, they made all kinds of accusations against Meister Eckhart because he was a very popular teacher. So you have to take everything with a grain of salt since so much religion was mixed with politics. But, uh, he was a very popular theologian. He taught in, in many different cities around Europe. He was a very popular teacher and respected, well-respected teacher. But he would teach from a mystical point of view, and we'll talk about, you know, that makes it difficult because mystical is, you know, often based on experience, and not everybody sees the same thing that you see. So, Okay, so I'll tell you my own journey with this is I was taking my ch church history class and I came across Meister Eckhart and started reading a little bit about him. And one scholar, she was writing about her own journey. She had been told by somebody, start reading Meister Eckhart. And if you don't understand it, just keep reading Meister Eckhart. That was the advice. Don't stop. You have to read it like four or five times. And she said what happened was that as she kept reading it, things started to make sense. Like they, they, there was a model or something that would, would start to make sense. And, and I've seen that in my own journey as I've gone back and read some of his writings, that the more you read them over time, 
the deeper you see into the, what he's saying, it's kind of, it's often hard at first. So there is a bit of a journey, even if you were just to read him. And it's not intended to create dogma, but it's intended to inspire his followers to see deeper into our spiritual journey. We're all on a spiritual journey. Our soul is being developed while we're walking with Christ. It's a dynamic situation, not static. So that was his emphasis. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the, the points that will follow, and then we'll keep track as we're going. I want to just address briefly mystical principles. We have both Christian mystics and we have Jewish mystics, and what they're doing is they're looking into the mystery of God, and they're seeing something, and then what happens is over time, they all tend to see the same thing. So you say, aha, maybe something is actually there, even if I can't quite understand it. We're going to talk about a principle that Meister Eckhart emphasized, continuous creation. That's a little bit different than the way we think, so we'll talk about that. We have to talk about this idea, theology, psychology, and the soul. We'll get there in a minute. He loved to use biblical metaphors to relate to your spiritual journey. We do that today, but they did it a little bit differently, so we'll talk about some of the biblical metaphors. We'll look at specifically at the soul and the word that we translate soul. That, that helps you understand where he's coming up with his metaphor and then the language that he uses. And then finally, at the very end, we'll talk about his, the way that he viewed that Christmas story, the birth narrative of Jesus. So that's our whole, that's the path that we'll follow today. So point one, and this is, uh, it's actually number two on your sheet, but the first thing we want to just talk about is, is mystical. Whenever you talk mystical, you have to, re we have to remember it's a mystery. And mystery inherently means we don't know. We're staring at something that we're not quite sure what it is. We live with mysteries. How does prayer work? Well, we don't know, but we see, we observe that prayer works. So it's like we're kind of staring at something that we're not quite sure why it worked, but it did. So when we look at the mystery of God, say the universe, the cosmos, whatever it is, and seeing if there's some kind of structure to God's reality that could be possibly explained. Now, the problem is you always have to explain it in metaphor. So I'll give you, even in the Bible, you find mystical events, right? So uh, Ezekiel has a mystical vision. Isaiah has a mystical vision of the throne room. Moses's ascent to Mount Sinai, in many ways, is a mystical journey, meeting with God. You also have, in the New Testament, the transfiguration. That's a mystical event. You climb a mountain, you ascend to God. Jesus has this transfiguration. We don't quite understand what happened, but that's, ex that's, that's the mystery. Uh, the book of Revelation. So you could, we find the mystical all over the place, and it just means we're, we're looking at something that we don't quite understand. But, you know, there are people who have greater insight into the mystery. So anytime someone is caught up into the mystery, and then they try to describe it, well, you're describing the indescribable. So it's hard to convey. That's my point. So if you feel like 
if I say something that you don't quite understand, I, do, I apologize. I don't intend to do that at all, but we are staring at something that's mystical. But what we find, if you read all the mystics, you start finding principles that exist. You find principles that are common amongst all mystics. And so if they're common amongst all of them, then you might think, well, maybe there's something going on there. I don't know what it is, but if there's a common thing, then maybe we should look at that and make that our starting point. So within the, you have Christian mystics throughout history, starting with the Desert Fathers in, in Alexandria, Egypt. They went out into the desert to live a contemplative life. You have Jewish mystics. And I'm telling you what, you read those Jewish mystics and you start to think, I hear Paul talking in that. It's bizarre. So there's Jewish mystics, and they come up with, again, the same idea. Now, here's the thing that I want to introduce that is probably the strangest thing um, we've talked about, we'll probably love this, is that what we're finding out today is that the study of science is relating to the mystics, and it's in the area of quantum physics or quantum studies. So at the turn of the 19th century, I'm sorry, the turn of the 20th century, there was a discovery in physics of a quantum, which is the very, very small particles. And it turns out it's quite mystical. They don't really know what's happening. There's a lot of very strange things that have happened in the, in the uh, quantum world. And yet people, as they study the quantum side and go back to the mystical side, they're saying, aha, we see, these, we see principles that are lining up. So to me, this, I think, is one of the coolest things in the world. Wouldn't it be just like God to use science to prove his existence? I mean, it would be amazing. It would be a divine irony that this group that claims there is no God and it's all a bunch of nonsense suddenly through discovering the minute in our world discovers God. And it would be, I would, that's just amazing. So there's a huge revelation of uh, happening that, or revolution, I should say, within the, the world of science. Uh, you know, so if anybody says, well, let's keep going. Let me give you one example. This is a book it just came out last year, well, not last year, 2019. It's called From Infinity to Man. Now, this is Jewish mysticism, so if you've never done anything with Jewish mysticism and you start reading this book, you're going to think, what did I just wander into? I had at least done some study of Jewish mysticism in the past, so at least I had a little bit of a foundation, and I'm going to have to read this book again like five times because. A, I'm, I have, I'm not a physicist, and B, I'm, I'm not a Jewish mystic either. So, But it's, it's a very interesting book as he's comparing quantum theories with the theories that were drawn up through thousands of years of, of Judaism. And that's, there's interesting concepts that are happening. So just for full disclosure, I'm going to mention quantum physics. I took two weeks of a physics class at Ohio State, and I ran. I sprinted across campus and I joined the business college. So you could call my physics class pre-business because it was like there was no way I was going to go down that path. So I don't, 
I don't want anybody to think I claim to know anything about this, but if you read about it, it's like, wow, that's wild. So quantum physics is, in a sense, a mystical study. It's, it's like they don't really know what's happening. They couldn't quite explain it. Um, there's a famous quote by Albert Einstein as he was looking at quantum things that were happening, and Albert Einstein called it something like, you know, spooky movement at a distance or something. He couldn't, he couldn't figure it out. So if Einstein couldn't figure it out, well, we're okay. Here's what I wanted to, which is the, probably the coolest thing about the quantum physics, is what they discovered is that human consciousness itself, human consciousness, your conscious awareness of things, changes the structure of reality. And this is what they've discovered over and over again. They can replicate that as a human observes something, it changes reality. That, think about that one for about a hundred years. I mean, that is a wild thing. What happens when we pray? So we bring something together in our own awareness as a group here in San Diego, and 900 miles away, the reality is affected in somebody's life. How does that work? We have no idea. So this is one of the coolest discoveries. Human consciousness, your consciousness, helps create reality. God created the world with human beings at the pinnacle, and that makes you, in a sense, a co-creator of reality, right? So when you come to know Jesus and your God, and you recognize the reality of God, and your consciousness changes, it changes the structure of reality in the world. That's bizarre, but this is one of the coolest things that we, they're discovering. So, I mean, anyways, it's one of the, I mean, one of the things that scientists just about 10 or 12 years ago came out and said, we don't know what 95% of the mass of the universe is. They call it dark matter or dark energy. That's a lot that we don't know what it is. And, you know, if anybody ever says the science is settled, well, it's not settled because there's a lot we don't know. You know, the moment someone says the science is settled, they probably don't know themselves or they have an agenda. So, it's typically what, what happens. So anyways, this is really cool. Let me show you one quote about quantum physics. The guy says, we have learned to live with the fact that nobody can understand it. Now that's, he's talking about quantum physics. And the guy who said this, Murray Gell-Mann, he won the Nobel Prize in 1969 for physics. So if you have a Nobel Prize winning physicist, say that we've learned to live with the fact that nobody can understand it, well, that tells you something about the mysticalness even of science. And so I, I think this is one of the coolest things as you look at the spiritual, the mystical in our religious world, and the science is that they're actually coming together. And again, I think it would be a divine sense of humor for God to prove himself through science. So, okay. So we have mystical principles. That's just one step along our way. The next one is something what we would call continuous creation. Sometimes we think of creation as static. God created the world, boom, and then just kind of let it go. You know, after the Enlightenment, the idea was, well, God kind of 
gave the earth a spin and then he's up in the he's sitting upstairs just waiting for something to happen but in the in the mystical side it's like no 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 god's always acting in the world right he god is god's spirit is always interacting with us he interacts with our spirit all the time and we change so there's some kind of creation that's happening all the time so this is a principle that meister eckhart when we get to his christmas story he's assuming as many did back then, the 12th and 13th century, that God's creation is continuously happening. It's not a static event that once happened. So Meister Eckhart believes this, the Jewish mystics believe this, and there's even a theory within quantum mechanics of a continual exchange of information that holds everything all together. And so, you again, you find something that starts lining up with the thinking. Okay, so principle of continuous creation. We'll come back to that. Uh, let's see. This is number four we're going to get to. In the 1300s, there was no such thing as a psychologist as we know them today. So theology, psychology, and the soul are all the same. If you said, well, who were the psychologists in the 13th century, or even before that, you would say the theologians were. They dealt with the mysteries of human behavior. And so if you're reading Meister Eckhart, you notice how much of it sounds like some kind of psychological thinking. That's exactly right. Psychology is the study of the soul. I'll show you that in a minute. So they had and this is on your sheet, they had, a, they had sophi more sophisticated ways of thinking about the soul than we do today. What's happened today is you have psychologists who study the psyche, and you go to church to save your soul, but what you're technically is talking about the same thing. And so we don't necessarily, we just kind of think soul is the thing that goes to heaven or that is saved. But they had a fairly sophisticated conception about all the different, they had different areas or functions within the soul. And the reason I bring this up is it was very common. This isn't something Meister Eckhart came up with, but it's common back then that there was an area of your soul. They called it the divine spark or the castle, or he calls it the ground. It's the place where God it interacts. Only God can interact with a human soul. It's this divine location. Now, where is it? Well, we can't, you know, open somebody up and dissect a soul and say, point to it. That doesn't work. But they said, look, there's a place in the soul that only God. And so when you interact with God, it's the divine spark. It's the, it's you, you have this moment of, oh, I think I just saw something about Jesus that I didn't recognize before. It's a divine spark that shows up. So he talks about the soul as this this point where God interacts and something is birthed out of the soul and the soul comes alive in a way that wasn't that way before. And, you know, we say we're born again. Well, it's, it's that point in the soul where God connects. And that's a, it was very common in his day. We don't talk again so much about that. We have other words that we use. But I just want you to recognize if you read his stuff, you'd see a or you can go on YouTube today and find some stuff on Th Thomas Aquinas talking about the soul, and you'll think, what on earth are they talking about? Well, that's just the way that they divided up the soul. Okay, 
let me, this is a historical note because this is important. The word psychology itself means study of the soul. The Greek word for soul is psyche. That's in your New Testament. Now, the people who studied the soul, we've been doing some kind of psychology for as long as human beings have, have recognized patterns of behavior. We just didn't have all the, you know, the, the scientific language that we do today. The word psychology, and this is on your sheet, one of the very first times it's used as study of the soul is a guy named Philip Melanchthon. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I apologize, Philip. He's a protege of Martin Luther. He's a theologian. And in 1530, he wrote a document called Commentary on a Soul. And he uses the word psychologist as someone who studies the soul. So again, it was theologians, right? Now, what happens is after that, after the Enlightenment, you start getting, by the 1700s, a divide. Scientists study the psyche. You religious people, you stay over there and worry about the soul. And something divided. And I think, of course, in any divide, we're going to lose something, right? The psychologists lose the recognition that that soul was created by God. And in the religious world, we lose the, we lose the sophisticated language of the soul. So I think that, you know, there needs to be some rejoining of this, which is why seminaries have the biblical side of seminary, and then you have the psychological side of seminary, like marriage and family therapy. All right, I put this book, just if you're interested in reading more about that, I put this book on your handout. It's called Soul and Psyche, and it takes you through the history of soul, psychology, and the psyche, as we'll see in a minute. But if you're interested in that, you can read about it in that book there. Okay, so theology. Theology is psychology in the 13th century, and they're studying the soul, and that's exactly what Meister Eckhart is looking at. How, do, how does the soul operate? How do we rebirth or regenerate the soul? Next point, this is number five on your sheet. Sorry, I, I, have to, I have to do like five different introductory points just so that it'll make some sense when we get to the, what Meister Eckhart is saying. He loved, this is what, one of the things that he was famous for, was taking the biblical metaphors. We'll talk about that in a minute. The biblical metaphors and relating them to your spiritual journey or your spiritual life. So what God does is God acts in history. Abraham left Ur. Abraham left his family. God acts in history. He called an individual out to follow him. Now, that action in history happened, that becomes a model. So that when you look at your own spiritual life, God calls you out. And if you look at, say, Abraham, and you say, God called you out of your land, your people, your family, meaning if you're going to go on a spiritual journey with God, you have to let go of something in order to move out into this new promised land, the new journey. So it's a biblical metaphor. You don't have to go back to Iraq, to Ur, to walk the journey yourself, literally. But the idea of Abraham becomes a, bib, a biblical, sorry, becomes a metaphor for our own spiritual journey. So what happens is 
Throughout the Bible, as God acts in salvation history, he creates a pattern or a model. And that model, then, can be abstracted later through metaphor to apply to your life today so that you don't have to go back and actually relive every single event. The pattern tends to repeat over time. So God creates a pattern or a model, and then it repeats, and then we pick it up in metaphor and apply it to our spiritual life. We do this more often than we can imagine. I'm just trying to dig deeper and look very specifically at how we do it. So there are models of God's cosmos in the Bible and the spiritual patterns that our life is structured by. I'll show you a few in a minute. So what would happen in the 1300s is Meister Eckhart, they had a very structured way of giving a sermon. So Meister Eckhart would start with a, a passage. Where is the king of the Jews born? Right? That's the passage out of Matthew that the Magi asked. And then he would give the literal setting. Or maybe he wouldn't. Sometimes he jumps right to the spiritual, but that doesn't matter. You give the passage. Then you say, well, here's the historical or literal setting. The Magi went to King Herod and asked, where's the king of the Jews? And then you have to think, well, how did King Herod like that? Then you take it and you abstract it to the spiritual, and you do it through allegory or metaphor or something to give us, to edify our own spirit today. And we do the same thing in churches, and that's what sermons do. But he, what he would do is he would often read the passage and go right to the, this biblical metaphor. So when we talk about these spiritual stuff, it's always in metaphor because mystical can't be explained directly. You explain it through metaphor. So for instance, let me give you a couple examples. And this is now on the back of your sheet, number seven on the back of your sheet. I've already mentioned this one, Abraham. Abraham, God called Abraham out of Ur. No problem. But then when you read the story today, what you can do is you look for the details and the nuances within the story, and it can become a metaphor for your own spiritual journey. So if God's called you on a spiritual journey, you have to let go of something. You have to, to move forward. You got to let go of the past in a way. Anybody who wants to mature has to eventually leave their household, right? A 45-year-old who's still sitting in this parent's basement, you know, with Cheeto dust on his t-shirt, isn't an attractive human being. They have to leave at some point and go off and become an independent operating human being in the world themselves. That's part of the Abraham story. You leave your family, your land that you came from, your people. And notice the journey of Abraham is not fun at all, right? I mean, it's not like he gets to Israel and it's all glorious. He's got one problem after the next, right? That's a journey with God. It's, you know, we expect that God's just going to make everything nice, but that's not the way his journeys go. So Abraham is a metaphor, spiritual metaphor. The book of Exodus is an amazing spiritual metaphor, right? You start in slavery. The Jews were in slavery in Egypt. Yes, literal story. God pulled them out. Literal historical event. But then it also becomes a metaphor for your own life. You start out in slavery you get delivered by the grace of God. God pulls you out to have a relationship with him. And the way the book of Exodus ends is they have to build a space, a tabernacle for God. And the moment you build the tabernacle for God, God dwells in it. 
And that's what God wants you to do in your own life. Build a space for God. He'll show up. So the Exodus is a spiritual model for your own life. Now, if you think about this, if you wonder who the Pharaoh is in that metaphor, the Pharaoh is you, right? Have you ever tried to say to yourself, boy, I really need to stop doing that, or I need to get rid of that bad habit, or I need to change an area of my life in this way? And yet it doesn't change, right? You're in a battle with yourself. Like you're the totalitarian dictator that won't let yourself leave in a, in a sense. So, okay, Exodus, another one. Within the Exodus, the Passover lamb. Who's the Passover lamb? Who does that represent? Jesus. This is amazing. Paul says Jesus is our Passover lamb. Well, what's the metaphor? The Passover lamb, the blood, if you're covered, you're delivered. And we would say we're delivered from our sins through the blood of a Passover lamb, a sacrifice lamb. That's Jesus, the lamb of God. And even in the Bible, they're using the metaphors from the past events to apply to your own spiritual journey. So, okay, that's a few spiritual metaphors. So here's, we're, we're down to, we have the mystical principles. It's continuous creation. Psychology is the study of the soul. You have biblical metaphors. So you take a story out of the Bible, like the birth of Jesus, and then you apply it spiritually to your own journey. That's what he's going to do with the Christmas story. Next, this will be our finest one, final one. The word for soul, and this is, if you were to read Meister Eckhart's sermons, he talks about the soul as a she. Now, why? Well, in Hebrew, the word for soul is nephesh. In Greek, the word for soul is psyche. So that's where we get psychology as the study of the soul. And in Latin, it's anima. And the one thing about each of these, in Hebrew, every noun is either masculine or feminine. So nephesh is feminine. Psyche is feminine. And anima is feminine. So when Meister Eckhart talks about the soul gives birth, it's, and he calls the soul a she, it's because the words are all feminine. Now, I don't understand that, but at least it helps you make sense of what he's, when he calls the soul a she and talks about the soul giving birth, now you say, ah, okay, at least it fits that it's a, that it's a feminine noun. We don't think of soul as either masculine or feminine. So two things. First, Greek psyche. That's how we come up with psychologists. And second, feminine. One, two, three. And in our world, who gives birth? The feminine does. So the soul gives birth. That's the metaphor. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the metaphor. Okay, so now we get to this idea of his Christmas story, the birth story of Jesus. And what he does is he takes that birth story of Jesus and he puts it in the spiritual metaphor for our own lives. So there's a biblical metaphor for that Christmas story, for the birth story of Jesus. Now he's he's not denying in any way the literal or historical. So what literally happened? Well, you have the Immaculate Conception. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. She became pregnant 
and you have the virgin birth of the Christ child, the one who will become king. So that's the literal version, and that's typically what we focus on in our Christmas celebration. We say, Immaculate Conception, Virgin Birth, the Christ child is born, the one who will become the king. That's the literal side. Well, what if we extract that to a spiritual metaphor? And this is what Meister Eckhart does. The Christmas metaphor is that the soul, feminine, your soul, gives birth to the Christ child. Christ in you. There's a moment of connection. Now, the thing is, as Meister Eckhart says, this is always happening. Every time you grow spiritually, it's as if Christ is more fully seated inside of you. That's, again, it's metaphor. So your soul, feminine, gives birth to the Christ child. Does it happen once? No, it happens continuously. That's the spiritual growth process. So that you don't just say, well, I'm, sa- I'm saved and then lay around and do nothing and wait for God to act. No, you, you're saved and freed up so that you can start growing into a little Christ. You grow, you mature, you become a little Christ, a little anointed one. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What does that mean to be a little anointed one? Notice in the, in the, in the New Testament how they talk about the spiritual journey. You, hey, you're a, you're a child. You, you, you li- we, we nourish you off of spiritual milk. But one day you're going to eat solid food. They use that metaphor of growing and the metaphor of Christ in you. Now, now we don't have time. I'm looking at the clock. We don't have time. But let me, I put these on your sheet. Go back and read them. But here's what Paul says in Galatians. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. So Paul is saying, look, Christ is now, he doesn't use the word birth there, but it's revealed in me. There's something's being born. The king is being born in me. Now I have, Paul, I'm talking, Paul has to grow through a process to become more like Jesus, more like Christ. So Paul says, look, the, God was pleased to do this. He revealed his son in me. That's, that's chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 2, tw- verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. There's a metaphor. But Christ lives in me. So there's an idea that Paul says, Christ is now living within me. How did he get there? That's Meister Eckhart saying, the soul gives birth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're, gener- you're regenerated. You're born again in a way, but you're born again to become the king. We'll talk about that next week. Last one, and this is an even better one because he uses the idea of childbirth. Paul says, it's Galatians 4.19, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, right? So Paul uses that metaphor, the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. So Paul wants you to have the Christ formed in you through the Spirit of Jesus. So it's, we find it in the New Testament. We just don't think this way, and that's why I'm going through all of this elaborate explanation, because we don't tend to think this way. So here's what we could say, and this is a, a couple weeks ago, Bonnie said, if you had to preach a Christmas sermon, what would you preach? And this is what I said. There's a metaphor going on, right? So the biblical metaphor for Christmas, A, historical, 
the birth of the Christ. Jesus is the, he's God's anointed king. He's the Christ. So we don't become him, but we, come, we become like him. And in the spiritual sense, our, birth, our soul gives birth to the Christ child within us. And then we, through our own spiritual growth and spiritual development, grow to become like a king. And what, what I think this does, what the metaphor helps me do, is recognize that I have something to grow and, and stretch towards. That my walk with Jesus isn't just to go through rote things, it's actually to expand and develop my soul spiritually. That's the whole idea of spiritual growth or spiritual formation. So I think this is, a, it's a, to me, it's a powerful way to set the, the holiday of Christmas to say, yes, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but we also celebrate the birth of Christ in us. It's like you're, you, could, you could have two birthdays going at the same time. And that year by year, as we grow, the Christ child is constantly being formed inside of you so that you become a little king. You become a little Christ. Okay, that is what he, almost every sermon, he'll have something about you being born into the Christ child. So that's, that's Meister Eckhart. Hopefully, I pray that I was able to at least lead you down that path that it doesn't sound too foreign. This is not one of the things that people were upset with him about. There were other things. But he's, as a mystic, he's looking not through a visionary mystic, through an intellectual mystic. He's looking at something, at the structure of reality, and he's recognizing that God is constantly in the process of creating, and he wants to rebirth you. You're born again. You're renewed, restored, replenished, refreshed. Anything that begins with an R is good. Resurrected, renewed, replenished, right? You don't want the D words, despair, depression, uh, disorder. Those are all the bad words. The R words are good. Okay, so let's do another R word. Let's do a review. This will help solidify it. You have mystical principles. This is really cool. If you've never thought about the mystical side of Christianity, there's some very interesting stuff, even within Judaism, some very cool things. And Paul... If you, if you read mystical Judaism and read Paul, you'll say, that's what Paul's talking about. And we've, people know that. It's just not talked about very much. There's a principle of continuous creation. The sun is continually being birthed, in a way, in you, in your soul, to form Christ inside you, the king. Before the division of psychology and theology, they were one and the same. The study of the human soul, psychology, we're the theologians, and now we've divided that, but God willing, that'll come back together. The, the psychologists recognize that the soul was created by God, and the theologians recognize when we talk about the soul, we're talking about the psyche. The biblical metaphors, how powerful the spiritual truths are that come out of the biblical metaphors if we would have eyes to see them that way. So it's, God acts in salvation history, literally then the way God acts becomes a model for the spiritual development of our soul. The soul, being feminine, gives birth, and you have to look at that word in each of the languages for the word soul. And then, of course, the Christmas story, the rebirthing of the Christ. It happened in Bethlehem, and it happens all the time now as the Christ is born, reborn in our soul through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, okay. Next week, 
as I mentioned, we're going to look at, we're going to take this idea one step further and say, okay, now if we, let's say any of that is even remotely accurate, that you're rebirthed to become the Christ yourself, a little Christ, not the, not God's, you know, Christ that's going to save the world, but that you become a little king. And what does that mean? That you're a king, you're anointed, you're sovereign. If you remember, as God brought Israel out of Egypt, 40 years in the desert, then took them into the promised land, he didn't want to give them a human king. He wanted to live as their king, and as if each individual would worship God as a kingdom of priests, meaning you're going to constantly reflect God into the world, then you don't need a human king. That was God's original plan. The Jews finally said, we need a king. And God said, look, just give them a king. And of course, they chose badly because they don't know how to choose a human king. So we do the same thing. We don't, know, we don't know how to choose our leaders. We're always choosing badly when we choose our leaders because we think they can do something that they can't. So the story is repeating itself. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, so next week, we'll look more about what does it mean that each of us becomes the king? All right. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.